Hey Jeff. Hey Eric. How are you? I am pretty good. How are you? Doing well, thank you. We just got back from a walk that we took across the park and we visited our friend Ashley and it happened to be around seven o'clock at night, which is when everyone leans out their windows or out their balcony or walks across the street and starts applauding or, or banging pots and pans or playing instruments and or uh, singing Celine Dion or it, you know <laughs> yeah, playing a trumpet or but it is all for the purpose of bigging up uh, healthcare workers and people who are doing essential work and uh, those that are out there on the front lines in addition to I think there is this idea where it's like hey I'm a human I'm locked inside you know most of the day every day I want to be heard and I think that it's a very powerful thing um, it's been happening for at least two months now, ever since we've all been in quarantine. And uh, it is still a very, very um, important thing, I think. And I found very moving. Yeah. And, and then we actually, we, we at the same time, walked a couple blocks and ran into a guy who was playing bagpipes and he was performing Amazing Grace. And that was very moving. So yeah. a good a good start to the evening, I think. Yeah. A little, I mean, little pick-me-up. I mean, you know, like it was also like it rained before and it was so nice when we went outside. Like it... If there's a metaphor there, hopefully somebody can find it. That's right. Uh, let us know in the comments. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, I do want to mention that this episode here today with Clark Kent and Naima Cochran and Jeff Sledge is a loving tribute to the uh, incomparable and uh, unforgettable music executive, artist, culture... Shifter. Shifter, yeah. Mover and shaker and creator... Andre Harrell, um, who, you know, maybe you know him, maybe you don't. I think this episode is important for all the things you're going to hear about him being a friend, about him being a visionary, and I think uh, being a very important person to so many people. And he really, you know, uh, not only created this this new era of, of what hip-hop and what R&B and what soul could be, but for uh, youth in America, and particularly black youth in America, he showed you a different kind of success and a different way forward. And um, I think this episode is really important because we got to learn a lot. This yeah. is not, you know, somebody who we were best friends with or even ever met in life. No, the one time that I was even in the same room as him, I think, was I went to Heavy D's funeral. Mm -hmm. And I saw him speak and he said, you know, of Heavy... Um, who he, you know, whose, whose career was really in his hands. Yeah. Uh, he said that Heavy, when he was dancing, he didn't know how big he was. Like, he moved, like, he didn't know how big he was. And if, again, if there's any metaphor to come from that for Andre Harrell, you know, I think that his impact is so much bigger than, than who, he, uh, who he is, who he was. And, you know, I think that even though he, his most forward-facing stuff was before our time mm -hmm. i think that his impact has been just felt forever since and and will go on forever more so. beautifully spoken uh, rest in peace to andre harrell and uh we're sending our love and thoughts to anybody and everybody who is affected by this and i think that is a large 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 uh group of us yeah. so um look forward to a great episode ahead of you and i i just want to say too um, shout out to everybody who is a Patreon member at patreon.com slash it's the real. That is a way for you guys out there to be involved in what we're doing in here. And I think when I say that, it's not just this episode today. It's not just the 40-something episodes before this. It's, it's also a string of 
quality material that we've put out for 13 years. It's, it's proof of what we, we have done and what we will do in the future. And uh, if you want to be a part of that, the best way forward is to go to patreon.com slash it's the real and, and make a, a uh, donation that goes over every month, whether it's $2 or $3 a month or even 5 or 10 or even more. If you feel like, like this is something you want to invest in, if you think that we're something you want to invest in, that is the place to go. Yeah, I just think that we have a fucking dope platform. And I think that uh, if you want to support that, that'd be great. That would be. We would not complain. <laughs> we will, I, will, I refuse to complain if you... There's so much to complain about. Yeah. That's not one of them. No. <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get into this episode. Again, this one is dedicated to the life and memory of Andre Harrell. Uh, long live Andre Harrell, the music he created, and the culture that he loved. Jeff, let's get on the phone now with Clark Kent. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The one and only God's favorite DJ... <laughs> Clark Kent, yeah, what up? What's happening? <laughs> How are you? There you go. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good. Good to hear from you. How has the last? What is? It's been like probably man, like maybe a, a month? month and a half. Yeah. Since we spoke with you, how are you doing? Uh, you and your family? Um, I'm okay. You know, taking it a day at a time. You know, it's, it's a little weird. Like ever so often, you hear about somebody else, uh, us leaving someone else, and then uh. It makes you pray harder that, you know, the people that are close to you and your family, are, that, that you don't leave them. But then that's kind of selfish <laughs> to not be praying for everyone. But, you know, at the, in those moments, you know what I mean? Like, you, you find out somebody passing and you, like, pray for your family and, like, it's better praying for everybody all the time. Everybody's in my thoughts. I really wish there was a switch that you could turn and nobody would be passing away. You know what I mean? 2020 yeah. is crazy. It's been it's been a lot a lot to handle. I think uh, you know we have to sort of like you said take it day by day and moment by moment. And as we as we move forward, we like to uh, pay tribute to those who are here, obviously, and we want to sing the praises of those who have left us. Uh, I guess we'll start off with the great Andre Harrell. Um, Clark, I texted you the other day because the post that you put up um, the morning after the news was just super meaningful, super powerful. And this is somebody that, that not only uh, changed, you know, how culture looked, how culture sounded, and how culture felt for the next, you know, 20 years, 25 years ahead. But this is somebody that was your friend. Um, can you talk about your friend, Andre Harrell? Yeah. Um, the, the thing is, like, I don't even know if I could say that he changed culture more than I can say that he is culture. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So many of 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 the people that come from him are the luminaries. You know what I'm saying? Like if he doesn't change the way it looks, then then it doesn't look like you we don't understand cloning sexy. We don't understand ghetto fabulous. We don't understand rappers being rich. We mm-hmm. don't understand rappers being executives. We don't understand we don't understand it without it happening through Andre Harrell. Like, he built so much of what you see today. It, it, it's kind of... I I completely look at him like he's the culture. You know, he is the culture. And this is he somebody is that culture. you met uh, at while he was at Rush or Def Jam early on? No, I met Andre when he was a rapper. 
Oh, he, right. When he put out, when he was putting out his first records, because um, I was a young DJ, and I used to find and meet and get to know and be in contact with all the artists that were making records. Of course, he's older than me, but still, I was out there, and uh, I found him, and I, I met him, and um, and Alonzo, who was uh, Mr. Hyde. Yeah. And he was in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So, like, I, so like I've really known them since I was a kid. And we were all kids, but they were older, of course. But we've always been cool. And then he started to, you know, when he went on to work with Russell, like, I would see him all the time because I was always around the movement. It, the thing was a real thing. Like, Death Jam was a real thing. The, the Rush offices was a real thing. And we would be there. And it, it, it's like the, the hip-hop game, the music business part of it was so small then that we all saw each other all the time. So you know what I'm saying. So it was, it was a real uh, dynamic. So knowing him all those years is crazy, especially because of the shift that happened when he got his chance. When he got his chance, the shift was so crazy that he just started putting people on all over the place. You know what I'm saying? Like he he just made life a lot better for a lot of young black people, and like it's it's ill when you find somebody like that. He's Special. He is a different kind of cloth. You are, it's, you are going to be hard pressed to find someone else of that cloth from that time period. I mean, he's like the, the second coming of Clarence Apa. Hmm. Just in that, like, he knew everybody and the people that he knew he put into power. God, should I, you you want to, like, give a list? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm saying like I'm 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 trying to you know get to the point of of you know heavy heavy D yeah yeah Mary J Blige Father and C Jodeci so that means he put on Devante who went on to produce tons of records and Devante was friends with Timberland and Missy Elliott who went on to become who they were you see what I'm saying like his his heritage his family tree is insane his family tree is Teddy Riley yep that means. After you heard Guy, everything that happened after Guy, the New Jack Swing, that's that's Andre Harrell's fault. You know what I'm saying? Everything. I'll be sure. Like that all of this type of stuff is because of Andre. Uptown records and, and how he felt about about young black beautifulness. You know what the crazy part? You gotta you gotta think. I named a bunch of names. I even gotten a puff daddy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so you know, just try to grasp that for a second. All those names that I mentioned, this is before I got to Puff Daddy. And then you saw what happened with Puff Daddy. So everything that comes from Puff Daddy is handed down from what comes from Andre Harrell. Clark, can you expound on the difference between cool before Andre Harrell and cool after? Cool after Andre Harrell looked better. You know what I'm saying? The rap game was the rap game, but Andre... When he was a rapper, him and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde wore three-piece suits on stage. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? When rap became big, it, it looked like Run DMC. It looked like what you wore every day. But when he was a rapper, he, they were wearing three-piece suits on stage. There were other artists that were doing it, but they went to the records doing that. And and, and when you went to see them perform, they were in three-piece suits. So when he evolved into becoming label owner and him 
dressing like every time you saw Andre he was fly even if he was in down clothes his down clothes were fly mm. his t-shirt wasn't the same t-shirt that you bought <laughs> his, his sweats his sweats were of a different material his sweats might have been casual while you chasing chance <laughs> I didn't know he wore sweats <laughs> and, and that's the thing like if you don't know like when you think Andre Harrell you think this guy looks like he came out of a magazine all the time. Yeah. Even his downtime, he still looked magazine ready. Andre Harrell is is the epitome of what ghetto flash is. He's that. He is that deal. He come on, man. Pub Daddy do parties with everybody wearing tuxedos because of Andre Harrell. Mm. Well, I want to. You know, I, I feel like there's a pretty good picture of what he was like as a you know, within hip-hop and within the culture. I want to know, like, what was he like outside? Like, what, what did he like to do, like, as a friend? Like, was he was he somebody who liked to go to dinners? Was he somebody who liked to play golf? Like, what was he, like, in his extracurriculars? This is a dude who could do the most ghetto shit, and you would feel like it was just different if he did it. So he could walk into a Chinese restaurant on a corner, and the Chinese restaurants just start to look shiny <laughs> and, and pretty. Like, he, there's nothing that he didn't do. It, it, it's not like, like, this is a dude who did the Hamptons before it was cool to do the Hamptons. Mm. It, so, it, even if it was just going to dinner, like, everybody going to this new fancy restaurant, Andre was three steps ahead of y'all. He was at the one that you would like after the next two year life. <laughs> so, if you were on child and he was somewhere in some French restaurant. You're not going to get to that French restaurant until you find two restaurants after this child. <laughs> like, he's that deal. You know what I'm saying? Like, when he brought me to work at Motown Records, one of the first things he said was, I'm going to introduce you to Clarence Avon, and you need to talk to Clarence Avon regularly. So I was going to have breakfast with Clarence Avon every day wow. for a while when I was at Motown because Andre said so. Wow. I mean, of course, I got a ton of I got a ton of games from Clarence, but we went to breakfast at the Four Seasons every day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, like, that's the kind of level of where he was at with it. He was like, you know, you, you got to think better. You got to, you got it, It's the other level. Can you talk about um, what life was like when Heavy D got on the scene? Well. The crazy part about Heavy D getting on the scene is I was with Dana Dane when all of this was going on. So when Heavy D came on the scene, we went on tour together. Like first time they went on tour, we went on tour. Mm. So we were we were friends like immediately from everybody putting out records. And Andre was just this brainchild who was like, I'm going to take this big light skinned dude, chubby light skinned dude, and turn him into a sexy jovial dude. But it's almost like Heavy D was. The, the tall, light-skinned, chubby version of Andre Harrell because he was always happy, too. He was happy. His music was jovial. His feeling was jovial. He was Andre Harrell in the rap form. <laughs> it's crazy. Just th- being around all of that. Be, like, I used to hang out in Mount Vernon with Eddie S. and mm-hmm. Hev and mm-hmm. I'll Be Sure and Easy Lee and all of them just because we were all friends with Andre. Because we were all in that same mix at the same time. So we would go up there and hang out with them.
it wasn't even it, it, the crazy part of it wasn't even a real reason. It just felt like yeah, it's what you're supposed to do. But we know each other and we're all around each other. Just go hang out with each other. That's do it. Everyone says that that Andre never had anything but a smile on his face. Always had a great attitude. Have you ever seen him pressed? I've I've seen him unhappy. I've seen him mad, and I've never seen him not smile right through it. I've seen him like maybe you know hint to something in an angry way, and I've seen him smile right through it. I, like, I don't know, man. I, he was a totally different animal. I remember after I brought um, Jay-Z, I was like, yo, you got to sign Jay-Z. You got to sign my boy. My boy is the shit you got to sign. He was like, yeah, nah. Right? <laughs> Jay-Z, yo, listen, Jay, understand me. I'm his vice president at the company, and he's saying no to me about this, right? So I'm like, okay, cool. So... Rockefeller comes off, does it all itself. You know what I'm saying? We put the records out. Everything goes crazy. We go to Jack the Rapper, and Andre Harrell is throwing the biggest party. I'm DJing. Ain't no niggas going crazy. And in the party, he said, I fucked up, right? (laughs) Yo, I was like, yes, you you fucked up. And he was like, you're mad at me, right? I said, I've been mad since the day you said He was like, hey, listen, he said, it's all good. He said, I fucked up. You were right. You were right, DJ Clark King. I didn't follow your sexy move. That's what he said. And then he goes, when we get back, let's do a song deal. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, let's do a song deal. So the songs that you didn't make, making albums with your name, he's going to make over here with us over here. And I'm like, like, how do you go from not signing to, to saying, well, fuck it, let's just do you a song deal. Mm. He, he, that's the kind of guy he was. He empowered, like, everybody who was around him. Understand me, when he went to Motown, he took, like, 10 guys from the music, young black guys from the music business and turned them in, into real and on and, and, and vice president. I was a, a director at, at, at another record company when he took me and he was like, come on, you're going to be a vice president for me. And I'm looking at him like, what? <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? But change, change lives. Like, he's just like, I'm going to just do it. Like, he, he's, he's, he's special. Man. I, I, I love the hell out of Andre. And though I didn't see him as much as other people did because he was on the West Coast, at least once, twice a month, it'll just be a call. Are you good? I'm good. How you doing? Always sounded the exact same way. Always sounded happy. It's just, that's why this is blowing my mind so much. How have the past like forty eight hours been for you? Like how how are you processing all processing all of this? Um, I'm trying to to do what I believe he would say or, or, or he would want because of his spirit. So on Saturday I, I did a block party with Jazzy Jeff for the release of um, Fresh Prince, the Fresh Prince kid with Bel Air, yeah. um, clothing, and in my set I was like, damn. Well, like, but I, I was totally like, what am I going to do? Because I heard the news, it was bugging me out, and I know that I got a DJ, and I'm like, well, what am I going to do? So I just thought, well, I'm going to play with, I'm going to do what Andre would have said. He would have said, yo, just play. Like, it's a block party, let's have a block party. Like, that would have been Andre. Hey, it's a block party, let's have a block party. <laughs> 
know what I'm saying? And, and I had to go into block party mode with Andre in mind. So I'm trying to think of records Andre loved and I'm trying to play it. The same thing when I had to, the next day on Sunday, we had to do the originals on Be Nice's live. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And then that morning I heard about Daddy Wright, who was also mm. someone that I, I, I met and knew and seen her work. I thought she was amazing. I mean, she's a legend. Legend, yeah. So I'm like, I'm like, what would Andre say? Andre would be like, yo, nigga, play me, play me, play So, I, and, you know, like the average person is going to look at it and go, well, I'm going to play a whole bunch of Andre records. And I'm like, Andre wouldn't like that. His records were his records. And he would have been like, come on, let's party. He was like, go on and sexy, my nigga, let's make it go sexy. <laughs> so I went to making it grown and sexy. And I, I, I pray that, you know, Andre is, is somewhere saying, Clark Kent's out there doing the right for his man. You know? Yeah. Because this, this, this is really rough, man. It's rough, man. Andre the Rose, especially, man. He, he, again, man, he was a different kind of cloth, man. Clark, at the inception of Uptown Records, what's the what's the one piece of vinyl that that you got you know passed off from a from a, a an Uptown rep or, or Andre himself that you knew that when you got into a party you put that and you and you drop that needle and the place would just explode? I think one of the first records that I I I, I can clearly remember him handing off might have been uh, Uptown kicking it. And I knew, I knew in the, in the clubs that we were playing, oh yeah, that was going to ring off. Mm. And it rang off. You know, Uptown's kicking it. This is before anybody made an album. Andre had Uptown's kicking it. And with Vanessa Sinquist, uh, Woody Rock, um, a whole bunch of other artists on the Heavy Being Boy. It, it, was, it was that deal. Uh, but it rang off. I knew it would ring off. But it's funny because I knew. Andre, he he had an idea, man. He, he his idea was was, was going to be young black opulence and, mm. and and things being fabulous and and people getting money and 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 not like getting money in a ghetto way, but getting money in a an enterprising way and a you know like yeah, feel good about it. Make sure that when you get money, it looks right. Make sure that. Don't just get money and buy a big chain. Make sure that suit looks right. So that means you can't buy a big chain because a big chain looks stupid on a pretty suit. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it was so much method to it. I, I, I think there's there's so much um, pain these days when, uh, you know, on top of losing a loved one, which is that you can't be around your family and your friends to grieve with yeah. others. Um, you know, we found that you know, every day people are losing people and are not able to, you know, say goodbye to them in person. Um, if you, you know, and, and sort of one step removed from that is how you celebrate a person. And can you imagine, Clark, if we were outside right now, what that would be like playing records to, you know, in tribute and celebration of Andre Harrell? Honestly... I would try to imagine, but I don't know if there's a place that I let a party go on for 20 days. <laughs> <laughs> if it was to celebrate Andre Harrell, it would be a non-stop 20-day party just because of the amount of happy that he eluded for six hours couldn't, 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 couldn't make it right. 
and you would need some place where you would be able to rotate people in and out. So it would have to be a stadium. They'd have to know, okay, you get four hours and then you out of here because the line is going to be crazy. It's, um, it's, it's not fair to compare the two. They're two different men. They've, they've gone their own careers. Certainly they've worked together and they have history together. But is it fair to say that when you looked at Puff and the way that he wore his sunglasses or the way that he, you know, dressed up and, and had, a, you know, the, the jacket just fall just right, is it fair to say that without Andre Harrell, you don't get Sean Puffy Combs? So you don't get Puff Daddy. You don't get, uh, you don't get a proper Jay-Z. You, pro- you, don't, get, you don't get a ton of, of us. You know what I'm saying? I'm I'm from his class. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So I, I was I was around when he was starting, so it's like almost I almost don't count. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. I was around the Russell Russell Simmons and all that, and I was in the game. But I'm talking about the guys that got in the game after Andre. You wouldn't you wouldn't have seen him. You wouldn't have seen him. The game wouldn't have been wide open like that because he opened the doors for young black America to look right in the music business. You know what I'm saying? So the record deals that would have got that got given away wouldn't have been the same. Those label situations, they wouldn't have been the same. If Andre Lorel doesn't crack that 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 I'll be sure that Mary J. Blige, that heavy D, that father and feet and and make you unafraid of hip hop. Mm. If he doesn't do that, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, Russ is doing what he's doing, but he's doing it the hardcore way. Andre's like, hold up, man. You know we like to get dressed up. You know we like to be fabulous. Do you remember the Cotton Club? <laughs> like Andre's, Andre's mind was like that. So you, he made it so we could be fly and show everybody that we fly and show everybody that we fly and we rap and make hard records and like, yeah, be clear. We we are fly. We really really fly. That's Andre's well. Well, thank God for Andre Harrell, and, and God bless the memory of Andre Harrell and the work of Andre Harrell. Um, before we let you go, Clark, there's a couple more things we want to talk about. Obviously, everyone has crowded around the television every Sunday night, obsessed with The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. Uh, number one, have you been enjoying it? Uh, number two, have, have you found out anything maybe you weren't aware of before or seen anything you weren't aware of before? And, and three, if you have any good Mike stories you want to share. Um. I, I guess the average answer for this is going to be what it is, you know, because there's a lot that you might speak to a lot of people who didn't actually, who weren't actually paying good attention when Michael Jordan was happening. Like I'm only a few years younger than Michael Jordan, so I was paying attention. <laughs> when he came, when he came to the league, I was very wide awake, going, oh, "This shit is about to, like, this shit is about to be crazy." Like I watched Magic and Bird. I watched Isaiah Thompson. You know what I'm saying? I watched, I watched Bernard King. Mm-hmm. Like I, like I'm a Nick, I'm a Nick fan since the early '70s. I watched our championship from the '70s, the one from the '70s. Mm-hmm. I watched that. Mm-hmm. I know we won one in, in the '60s, but you know I wasn't too, too, too much aware of that. But the one in the in the '70s, I was like seven, eight years old. Yeah. I saw it. Yeah, I saw it. I watched it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? I was, I was cognizant of what was happening. So when new players came, I was paying attention. I loved sports since I was a little, little kid, and I was allowed to watch TV to watch what we had as New York sports. So I'm a, 
a Reggie Jackson fan. I'm a a, 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 a heavy Yankee fan, a heavy Knicks fan. Uh, you know what I'm saying? A heavy mm-hmm. Giants fan, mm-hmm. super heavy Giants. <laughs> so when when Michael Jordan comes, I'm like, oh shit, what <laughs> is this? And you know, first when he first gets here, you're like, ah, oh, this guy, he, he's gonna be like Dr. J, and then it, it just becomes something else. It's like, oh no, he's not like Dr. J. Dr. He's like Dr. J with a little bit of magic and a, a little bit of, of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of. Wait a minute, he's 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 even more than that mm. because he just kept being crazier and crazier and crazier. And you, so like when you hear him, and, and the people are talking about his attitude towards the way he approached the game. Like, I don't have to hear that to know that that's what happened. <laughs> I don't have to hear that. I don't have to hear that that he beat up on his players or he 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 was tough to his players on the team to know. Yeah, yeah, I, I understand. Like, like that that like, there's nothing that, that you have to know if you want to be a champion on that level and you the leader of the team. You're going to be rough to your teammates, especially if they're not playing up to what you need them to play up to. Because as soon as they started playing up to what you need to. There's three championships in a row. As soon as he leaves, no championships. As soon as he comes back, three more. <laughs> like, it's him. He's that deal. There's never been a player that makes that serious of a difference when he goes and comes. If, every time he went to the finals, he won. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go to the finals. I might lose this year. <laughs> no, I get to the finals, I'm winning. And I'm not going seven games. I'm winning. We got to, we got to get up out of here. I got to go on vacation. <laughs> Yeah, I you keep thinking about like, like the how different everything would be if Barkley had won against him. You know, if he only wins the two the first time around. Mm. You know, like it it because he was able to persevere and get that third one. Yeah. Cuz Magic then, and Larry didn't do three in a row. And then he comes back and he is just like, "Well, I have to I can't just get one." <laughs> or I can I can get none. I have to get one. And if I can't if I get one, I have to get two. If I get two, I have to get three. Yeah. So like well, it's a whole mentality he, that he, I just like do not have. He's special. <laughs> I, I, the other part is I don't look at the what if, because if that was the case, we'd have a we'd have way too many conversations about what if this person did that or that person did this. Like you go, we don't leave it right there. <laughs> when he went to the finals, he was going to win. If he gets to the finals, he's going to win. And your mentality knowing that he's coming to play you in the playoffs is already like he's probably gonna win. Imagine that. Walking in to a situation going, he's probably gonna win. But we still gotta play. Well but Jay Jay Z has that sort of aura too, right? Where it's just like, oh, this guy well, is the best for a reason. Well well <laughs> Oh, this is Jordan at a game. Yeah. So you should expect it. Hoes looked at at rap like, yeah, I don't want to do that shit because I'm so far ahead of these dudes. I'd have to get up. I'd have to get in the game, slow down for them to get it, and then keep moving from the slowdown point. Like he looked at rappers like, y'all want to be like me. Like imagine that. Imagine being the guy who's looking at a rapper in an elevator, going, this guy wants to be like me. This is hilarious. <laughs> Uh, before we let you go, Clark, a couple weeks ago, there was this big uproar on Twitter, especially where people were claiming that they first found out about Air Force Ones or that Air Force Ones finally became cool when Nelly put out a song called Air Force Ones. Clark, the floor is yours. 
Clark, we love you. It's no, always no, no, a pleasure no, no, to talk. Wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Was, yeah. was that a serious comment? Serious <laughs> yeah. You know, like, be- wait, before, <laughs> before Nelly started to rap, Air Force Ones were cool. You, you, you dig what I'm saying? They were cool. They were already cool. Like, and let's be honest, they didn't wear cool Air Force Ones. <laughs> they wore mid. They wore, they wore mid. Real Air Force One guys wore highs and lows. If you were making records, the records you were making about, you were making records about men. You didn't wear the right Air Force One, so you weren't that cool <laughs> in the first place. You understand what I'm saying? So for me to hear that conversation, like, I, I why would I even pay attention? Like, even, like, I love Rocky. He, he, that's my little man. Yeah. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't let what he said affect me. So I don't know why Nelly let what he said affect him. Like, you... You come from after guys like us. You learned about Air Force Ones watching Mace and, 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 and people like that. Like, And Mace learned that from being outside in Harlem when he was a little boy. You you, you dig what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I, I can't look at the things that these dudes say and take offense to it. Like, we, we were rocking Air Force Ones before rock careers were jumping off. And that... Is that on that? So before before you started to rap, Air Force Ones were already cool. Your father probably had Air Force Ones. <laughs> Clark, you are the greatest. Thank you for everything. Stay safe. Take care of your family. Love to you and your family. Uh, we'll be checking Thank in, all right? you guys, man. You're two of my favorites, man. Be good. Jeff, let's now get on the phone with our friend, one of our former managers, and a cultural historian. All the same person. Archivist. Um, biographer slash 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 historian yeah. Naima Cochran. Hello. Naima, what up? Hi. How are you? It's my two favorite Upper West Side brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Naima, uh, first and foremost, how are you doing? Um, I'm okay. Uh, all things considered, I'm I'm doing pretty well. My you know, I'm healthy. My friends and family are healthy. Uh, the biggest issue I probably have right now is that my sleeping schedule is thrown to hell. And if that's my biggest problem... Naima, your it. sleep schedule has always been bad. <laughs> this is true. So imagine a person who already had issues with keeping any kind of routine at all whatsoever in the midst of a shutdown. It's pandemonium in my house but shouldn't it be that like it's so off schedule that now it's on schedule in theory except that it's off schedule in different ways all the time (laughs) so there was a week where i didn't go to bed every day until about six o'clock in the morning sure at 11 and then yeah but for no reason that's the thing it's not like i was doing anything i was playing tekken i was (laughs) like it was whatever playing tekken oh yeah Right, so I got a PlayStation right before the shutdown because I was like, I need to have something. Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, same. And like we got it. We got an NES. We have a Nintendo. Yeah. Right. So like the for the first three weeks, it was basically like I was having camp in my house. So <laughs> I was learning how to DJ. I was learning Mortal Kombat, the latest Mortal Kombat, which is actually incredibly difficult, by the way. <laughs> um. And then once people realized that we were going to be in this kind of indefinitely work started, 
picking back up. But yeah. yeah, for the first few weeks, it was a lot of cooking, eating, and just playing with stuff. So Naima, does stuff. this feel now that we're two months into it like it is the new normal? Not yet. Um, but it's moving closer towards that every day, especially in entertainment as the streaming as the live streaming entertainment is is picking up and brands and corporations are starting to figure out how to do it and you know i knew we were in a in a in a state of normalcy once tv shows were embracing and adjusting to remote programming um saturday night live or parks and rec yeah Yeah, like or you know yeah like not just the dailies but the weekly shows Mm -hmm. um What's the, what is it, All Rise, the court drama that did their entire season finale um, remotely. Um, Once we, you know, the fact that reality shows are doing their reunion shows remotely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, this is now becoming a thing, right? Um, Production teams are adjusting. They're learning how to, you know, they're learning best practices. Brands are now trying to figure out how they're going to tap into the IG Live. So in the entertainment space, at least, there is a nor- there is a normalcy coming out of this, but there's still no real way to pivot from festival season and tour season in a real way. Yeah. So it remains to be seen what comes of that. I saw something, and I I don't put you know any sort of credence in this, but I did see that there's one artist who is like going to have his concert essentially at a drive-in, so people can sit in their cars to watch this person perform that doesn't seem fun which sounds terrible yeah it sounds terrible i i i do see a lot more people talking about our drive-ins options again the problem with the drive-in situation is that there aren't a lot of drive-ins left in the country that's yeah. a yeah um the ones that did exist have long since been torn down D, you know you would have to find if you wanted to create new ones you would have to find the real estate um, to allow for like a certain amount of cars and you know the technology, I don't know how long that would take. Maybe it is the return of the drive-in. Who knows? But I don't. I still don't know if that works for a live experience, right? Like, even though we can get some of the same energy and um, sense of you know community as fans watching something on IG Live remotely in different ways, and we're learning that still isn't the same experience as being in a seat, being able to get up, having a crowd around you, you know, really hearing the sound wash over you, et cetera. Like, there's just really no way to duplicate that except that. Yeah. Well, that so, being said, people are going on Fortnite to watch Travis Scott, and uh, and apparently that's, like, wildly successful. Or and at wild- least an image of Travis Scott. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not actually Travis Scott. <laughs> it's not even live. I don't understand anything. <laughs> Naima, um, this is a time now where I think a lot of people are trying to figure out their standing, whether it's with their company, whether it's with their career, whether it's just like how to move forward on a, on a day-by-day basis. Um, we're, we're no strangers to pivoting. You're no stranger to pivoting. How do you feel now uh, in this time of sort of unrest as someone who has, you know, done a lot at your core? You have skills and those skills can translate to many different things and you are not essentially like stuck in a corner. Right. Um, well, I'll be honest. I knew early on because because most of the most of the money that I earn comes in one way or another from things that require people being able to assemble, right? So I knew early on that my year financially was probably going to be a wash, and I just accepted that. 
is what it is. And um, to you guys' point, my thought was like, okay, what skills do I pivot to? What is it going to look like? What do I need to adjust for to be ready for the rest of the year and possibly the first half of next year, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, that's meant leaning more on my writing, which I'm thankful to have as an outlet. And it's actually ironically provided a lot more opportunities for me to use my voice and for me to, um, to write for people. I've done a couple of guest lectures for classes. Um, I've done more podcasts, um, you know, appearances or features, guest spots, whatever you call it. But now I'm considering, do I, as my own Naima brand, which I'm sure you guys can relate to, as my own Naima brand, most of what I do is in support of other artists, talent, companies, et cetera. Do I want to move more to the forefront and create more of my own content? Right. Like, mm-hmm. do I want to move more to a video platform space? Do I want to hop on IG Live and do something? The The only thing that's prevented me so far is just the amount of work that goes into it feels very daunting, right? Like, it seems very simple to outside viewers, but you guys know, like, you have to edit, Mm -hmm. you have to plan, and you have to, you know, do all these different things to get quality content out. So that's my thought, really, coming out of this is, okay, does this mean that I need to pivot more to stuff that's within my own control? Because, you know, basically the entire entertainment industry, gig industry, tour industry, live industry, all of this is, you know, hospitality industry, it's all in flux. Yeah. So it's kind of been like, okay, what's within my control that doesn't change regardless of the circumstances? Absolutely. And I think that's something we're all going to be trying to figure out for. Well, me. and I think, you know, talking about your writing, you uh, you said the other night you were you were up at 3 a.m. So this all goes, you know, into everything we've spoken about already, which is uh, you were you were up. You, you you found out the news, obviously, about the, the passing of Andre Harrell. You mm-hmm. emailed uh, Billboard and you said, I would like to be the one to to really write the, the piece on this to sort of look at the bigger perspective, not just the guy who gave Sean Puffy Combs a chance, right? I want to yeah. talk about yeah. uh, legacy in terms of fashion, in terms of like uh, being black in America, in terms of right. the bigger picture. And I think that Jeff and I really, really appreciated that. I think that we've seen so many people across the timeline appreciate that. Can you just talk about what um, Ghetto Fabulous means to you? Can you talk about what uh, Andre's and and Uptown's music legacy is? And can you talk about what he has done for uh, generation after generation in terms of being black in America? Sure. Um, So, yeah, I was I got a call. I got two calls about Andre shortly before the nice um, I think Derek broke the news publicly um, when he announced it in his live. And I had already gotten a couple of calls and I was waiting to find some confirmation on the timeline, but it was already maybe like 1130 midnight. Um, So as I was watching the news break and people react, I like, like you guys said, I hit my editor at Billboard. Like I need, I need to be the person to write this because I knew that, what many, I'm not going to say all, but what many mainstream outlets were going to report was about Andre founding Uptown, about Puffy, about Mary, about Josie. And Dre's legacy is way broader than that. And the first thing I should say is that I am indirectly a product of Dre because I started at Bad Boy. Right. And I started at Bad Boy when Dre was president at Bad Boy for a little while. 
and um, like half the executives at Bad Boy were former, were former Uptown staff. Um, Puffy's inner circle has always contained a lot of people who he, who he started with at Uptown, um, which I don't think people really realize. So I saw firsthand, and I've seen over the years firsthand, like how Dre interacts with, with with not just artists but with execs. Like like you guys said, if you looked at the timeline from Friday night even to now, there were so many stories about how he was magnanimous with his wisdom, with his resources, how he saw people, how he took time, how he, you know, gave gems. You know, Andre had all kinds of quotes like, you know, whack, don't get whack juice on you, <laughs> don't catch a brick. You know, he coined Ghetto Fabulous, which I'll get into in a second. And there were all kinds of Dreisms, right? But also he was like all that preserve the sexy shit and everything that we all give Puff credit for, that started with Dre. Mm. Um, that was Dre's thing. Dre was the lifestyle guy. And, you know, and he was in this game from the very beginning, started at Rush, was best friends with Russell, um, was one of the first, you know, was an early rap, part of an early rap act in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm. And in a day when people were wearing, you know, either... Houdini, which was doing all kinds of leather and <laughs> you know some some rat you know some raccoon tails and some other miscellaneous wide brim hats or whatever <laughs> yeah yeah wide brim hats or or your Run DMC with you know Kangol's and Adidas and gold rope chains. Andre and his partner Alonzo were in Italian silk suits, you know, and they were rapping about watches and girls and money and champagne in 1981 right when like 20 years before the bling era Mm -hmm. um but it was party rap like they actually had a song called champagne rap it Mm -hmm. was party rap and party rap wasn't really a thing yet um and it was aspirational which i think you know was a hint of what he was going to do with uptown and one thing he always in terms of the ghetto fabulousness one distinction Andre always made between, like, the reason he left Rush and left Def Jam and the, thing, the distinction he always made between him and Russell was that Russell was a kid from the suburbs who was enamored with street stuff, right? Like, he loved that really hard, gritty street shit because it was a novelty to him. Mm-hmm. And Andre's thing was, I'm from the project. Andre's from Bronxdale Project. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm from the project. None of that is sexy. Like, people where I come from want like glamour and luxury and they want to they want aspirational things but also people from the project and this is where Dale Fabulousness comes in you may only be able to afford one fly bag or one designer pair of jeans or one really fly pair of kicks but you're going to rotate those couple of pe- couple of high-end pieces that you're able to get and mix high-low, like, people from the ghetto were doing high-low before high-low was, like, a thing that blogs were covering and everything. <laughs> so you're going to mix you're gonna mix that, you know, build outfits around that and change up the ways in which you can wear that that still looks fly and still looks stylish. And that was what ghetto fabulousness was. Um, even though Andre patterned, um, in a large part, his own, his own career in Uptown after Motown, what Motown did was take blackness and polish up the shiniest parts of it, right? Mm-hmm. Make it very clean and neat. 
um, everybody stands up straight, yep. everybody articulate, you know, all of that, and make it very palatable for a white audience. Barry Gordy very much wanted white listeners because that's how you got popped. Yes, it was a black label, but it was it was a it was a blackness that was packaged for mainstream consumption. Andre was was like, I'm not gonna just give you full street that you are going to find novelty in, nor am I gonna take the street all the way out so that it feels more accessible to you. I'm gonna show you high Negro style, ghetto glamour, you know, black flyness that has the edge and has the cool, and I'm gonna show you how these two things can go together. And that was something that no other music company or entertainment company was doing at that point. So he started that movement of, you know, being from the street but still fly, being able, not having to assimilate in order to be considered like upper echelon, you know, and and he did it right at a moment when the black upper middle class was growing, right at a moment when hip hop was starting to make more money and become a larger business. So as young black people were getting money, it's like Uptown was really like the label of young black wealth. You know, to to do that is one thing. To do that in the face of, I'm sure, a lot of white executives who did not understand what was going on and did not want to right. give him the leverage to do what he wanted. And I think you would see that later in his career, too. But but let's talk about like Uptown. Uh, to do that and succeed on such a level, I think, is is just the 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 biggest compliment to him and and the way that he can remain himself and build other people up yeah indeed and and actually as he was leaving uptown um to to move into motown and actually take you know barry's former slot as chairman of motown he did um he was remorseful a little bit that he didn't have a better situation so for example he started uptown i want to say maybe right before um, LaFace was formed and obviously way before, you know, Bad Boy was formed, but there was some speculation, like, had he gone to Clive, mm-hmm. right? Clive was letting these labels, giving these labels a lot more latitude to do what they do because Clive had a better understanding, possibly, of black music. Um, or at least knew enough to know he needed to turn the black music over to the people who knew what they were doing. Yeah. Whereas, Andre felt hamstrings. You know, he, he actually said, he was like, I would have loved to get married. You know, I sold three million with Jodeci. I sold X million with Mary. I would have loved to get them to a six million point like Tony Braxton. Mm. You know, I would have loved, like, Mary and Jodeci were stars by their sophomore album, but neither of them became full-blown, like, really big stars until they moved to MCA proper. So, and, and that was one of the things that really bothered him was black executives were good to spot the talent and grow the talent, but once the talent really popped, the white executives took it over. Right. Um, and the black executives were basically put back out in the field to find some more talent and repeat the process all over again. So he did feel that MCA never really got what he was trying to do, even though they claimed to, and that they never really gave him the, whether it be funding or latitude or autonomy or control that he really needed to build the label up to build his artists up as big as he thought 
they could be. It was wonderful that he had all these platinum selling acts across the label, but he always felt that they could have been even bigger. Like, you know, he, he, he would have loved to have created a TLC, a Tony Braxton, etc. the way that um, LA and Faze were able to. Do you think that that Heavy D was maybe uh, his most underrated uh, success when you think back about uh, his, his whole career? 100%. Yeah. 100%. Heavy D is the most underrated everything in hip-hop at all times. <laughs> in hip-hop, in music, anything. If, if the question is, is Heavy D, yes, he's the most underrated, whatever. Because there, for a couple of reasons. The first reason being that Andre built Uptown around Heavy. Um, Dre wanted to sign Heavy. Andre, um, Russell was like, he's fat. Nobody's going to get it. Dre was like, nah, the girl's going to dig him. He's charismatic. He's, you know, he's lovable. He's got style. He's got flair. He can move. You know, he's, like, he can move. He's like on his feet. And he, that was, that was like the catalyst for him to form his own thing because he saw what Heavy could be. And not only did he build the, the label around Hev, but Hev was a, a consistent platinum artist for a large amount of his career, B is credited as one of the first hip hop artists because it was friendly party rap, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Accessible, danceable, fun rap. He was one of the first artists to kind of really break all the way into the mainstream. Even though he never had a pop hit, White people knew who Heavy D was. Like he was, he was. Pop yeah, it was friendly. Wait, wait, but so, isn't that automatically Michael make Jackson? Him a, yeah, that, that makes him a pop. Well, yeah, I mean, with with the collaboration with Michael Jackson, right? So he was tapped. Like Heavy did collaborations with Janet and Michael. He was on All Right, and he was on mm -hmm, Damn. Mm -hmm. Um, he was one of the first Heavy D and the Boys were one of the first acts to be in Sprite's Obey Your Thirst campaign. Yep. I think he might have been the first. Um, it was either him or Kid and Play first, but they were both the first. And, and, you know, he's the voice behind the Living Color theme song. Like, Hev, what, Hev was... And he went to Hollywood. And, and he went to Hollywood. Like, Hev, I think that Hev still had a much bigger acting career ahead of him um, had he not had he not passed um, so that suddenly and untimely. But, yeah, he, and he was actually a good actor, right? And when Dre created Uptown Entertainment, the TV and film vehicle, he actually did have a sitcom in development would have as the centerpiece that never um, made it all the way to screen. So I think he had intentions on doing more for Heaven, putting Heaven in the center more. The other thing about Heavy, though, is that Heavy was immensely talented in a way I don't think people know. So Andre didn't discover Puff. Hev brought Puff mm -hmm, to Uptown. Mm -hmm. um, Hev brought Albie Shore to Uptown. Mm -hmm. Hev brought... Pete, like Pete Rock was Heavy's cousin, you know what I mean? So yeah. Heavy brought Pete, Heavy brought Eddie up to Uptown. Heavy was the one who, along with another, like Heavy heard Jodeci sing with another executive. That one executive was about to tell them no. Heavy took them into Andre. Like you need to listen to them. By the time Andre left, Heavy was EVP of the company. Heavy took the helm. Yeah, you know? and So For Real was his act, and So For Real was the first Motown pop number one. Heavy was incredibly talented incredibly like versatile just really smart and so he he was such a central he was such a more essential figure to uptown's legacy and to hip-hop origins period and hip-hop soul's origins period than i think people really gave him credit for ever um and and so yeah i do think that people underestimate how important heavy is to Andre's story and to Uptown story. People always make it about Puff and Jodeci and Mary and there's so many other figures 
in in this cast. You know, I, I Naima, I just want to say that your um, your music sermons on Twitter and on Vibe and everywhere that you've put them are so good, and you have to put them like in a book or something. Like something has to come from this. Like your your depth of knowledge on music history. Yeah, I, I think I think you see a lot. People like to say uh, we're losing our recipes you know, more and more. And I think that uh, with people like you to uh, catalog them, to archive them, to look after them has been uh, especially important uh, as more and more people do pass on. Yeah, um, thank you guys for that, first of all. I will say that since we've been in shutdown, I finally have decided, you know, what my first book is going to be. People have been pushing me to do one for a minute, and I couldn't figure out what to focus on to start, and I and I finally have. So I'm working on a proposal now. But um, when – so I'm going to take it back to Combat Jack, who was my first boss in the industry, right, you say. Um, Music Sermon was already well – underway and you and you guys I think both know this like it started completely by accident um you guys actually knew me at the time that I started it it really came out of a place of me not of the of the business not being fun for me anymore Mm -hmm. and wanting to um it started from a place of nostalgia just wanting to remember uh things that were more celebratory um things that were more uplifting just just a, a happier happier times that music recalled for me whether it was the music I grew up with or it was music that I worked on or that I was around for early in the game there's different eras of of the business and then I realized that there was also room for education because there were so many figures that were um undersung if not unsung altogether or where over time their their depth and breadth of contribution had kind of been forgotten, like an Andre, or even like a Babyface. Face was, I think, the third music sermon I ever did once it became a thing. Mm-hmm. And so I was so happy to see, like, the Teddy and Babyface battle, like the number of people that wanted to watch them and bear witness to that. That made me really happy. Um, but when Reg died, right before he died, he he hit me and he was he told me that he was really proud of what I was doing, which meant everything coming Man. from him because he had done basically what I'm, basically my goal is to do with, with R&B and certain aspects of hip hop, what Reg was doing for rap and hip hop with the Combat Jack show, mm-hmm. which was a level of storytelling and archival and also allowing the people that were there to come in and tell stories that other people maybe hadn't heard before or just to remind people of things that they had possibly forgotten because the great and terrible thing about the digital age is that there's so much information for you to find but also everything is so immediate like our attention spans are so short that you could really already forget about how massive something that happened in 1999 was yeah so i i felt like i owed it to him um in a sense to his legacy you know as i was seeing people talk about what he meant to them and what his platform and his work meant to them and thinking for myself about like what do i want my work to be for right like the thing about being in the entertainment industry that's tricky is that very few people actually retire from this shit 
like either you get fired or unfortunately, you know, you die early because you worked yourself to death or, or, you know, something, something else happens or you're, or you're just not hot anymore. And it's not, it's not a long game for a lot of people. And you have to have an, have an, um, an exit plan. And that was kind of my thing was like, what is my end game in working in music and entertainment? What is my end game as a creative? What impact do I want to have when all is said and done? So even though this started as something to feed my own soul, when I realized that there was more here that I could give to other people and that it was actually creating a community of people on Twitter that had like interests and like memories that they could share with each other and talk about, I realized that I wanted to pour more into that. So I never intended for it to lead to me becoming, you know, an actual music journalist, culture critic, all of those things, but it's definitely something that's always been in my spirit. And it just does make me really happy to keep voices, um, to keep like, names and voices and stories lifted that otherwise might not be absolutely yeah. well naima before you get out of here um or before we let you go rather um i wanted to ask you john legend is rumored to be the next verses against alicia keys yes and i wanted to know what you think the outcome will be as someone who <laughs> who completely unbiased no, yeah i saw that i actually need to check I actually need to text Jay about that because I saw that and I was like, I mean, it makes sense <laughs> the battle of the dueling pianist, right? Right. Um, Jay is if if John sticks to his early albums, the Get Lifted era, mm-hmm. he can knock this out the park. Yeah, <laughs> um, easy. And and but but that that would be my strategy. So so Jay, even if you, even if John's not listening, I'm actually gonna text him and tell him this. So if, <laughs> so if he if he sticks to the get lifted and the once again era, and then touches on the hits later, the green light, mm-hmm. you know, all of me. Mm. See, he, but he could he, also bring and, out like the Rick Ross features. Like mm. he could do like yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, he has he has deep like John has deep features. Yeah, crazy deep features. And if he really wanted to, and if he really wanted to, it might almost be cheating. But if he really wants to fuck people up, <laughs> he could hit Alicia with her own song because John is in. John is singing the ooh ooh's on "You Don't Know My Name." <laughs> wow, so here we go. <laughs> it could be like it could be like a Jill Erica moment where Jill's like where Erica's like I'm gonna play this song and the Jill's like well, I'll, I'll play, play it too. <laughs> <laughs> so they could do that. John. Um, it's playing keys on everything is everything. John's on, you know, celebration by Kanye. Oh yeah. John's on um, a couple of joints from um, Kingdom Come for Jay. So like, if he really wanted to fuck people up, he could do that <laughs> if he wants to go. Yeah, but the, the other thing is that like, I I also worry that it's going to be like the softest gloved like battle. Like even outside <laughs> of like you know uh uh. uh Erica and Jill, like it's just like they like it's gonna be a compliment off. Like John is so yeah. nice, Alicia is so nice. Yeah, yeah, they gotta bring they gotta bring a little bit of fun and snark, and and John can get snarky when he wants. <laughs> to. Um, he can he can definitely do it. Chrissy help sharpen those skills and help. Yeah, yeah, but he yeah. He can get snarky when he wants to. Alicia has to be game for it. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if Alicia 
is ever comfortable moving out of the love and light space. Right, but right. Also, Alicia will have Swiss helping coach, right? Who, who is the so best, yeah. I, yeah, so I do think actually that John and Alicia could be a good thing because one of the one of the comments I saw after Jill and Erica was like, it's great that we have the women now, but why do we have to segment it? Right. So I think that it would be dope to have two peers and very similar types of artists go head to head who like that's a man and a woman instead of it being the men against the men and the women against the women. But yes, my recommend, I think it could be interesting and fun if each of them stick with their jam and, and their early work. Cause that's, that's really the trick to this versus thing. Like there's hits and then there's hits. People don't necessarily want your chart hits. We want the jam. We want the stuff that makes, Move and that really resonates. Wait, you weren't there for Lil John turned down for what? <laughs> Yo, if I could tell you, if y'all knew how mad I was when John played fucking turned down, <laughs> listen, because everybody was waiting for Bia Bia. Everybody, like, one of my friends on Twitter was like, when he plays Bia Bia, I'm calling one of these kids downstairs to catch it. That's right, that's right. I was. So- I was like ready to stand on my couch. I was trying to figure out what was safe to throw. Naima like, was going to stay up all night, all not because she was waiting for this, but because she just doesn't sleep anymore. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was like, I, I was ready to run around the living room, do something. And he played Turn Down. <laughs> yo, I went crazy. I was like, yo, this is my jam. This is, this is the song I've been waiting for. Naima not reading the room <laughs> Naima your voice uh, is has always been important it's never been more important than it is now we look forward to everything that comes out of this especially uh, your book proposal and hopefully the book down the line uh, we love you take care of yourself stay safe and we'll be checking in alright thank you guys I love you too Jeff now let's get on the phone with our friend and Atlantic Records Vice President of A&R Jeff Sledge legend Jeff! What up? What's happening? Yeah! yeah. <laughs> Jeff, good Come to hear on, your voice in these crazy times. In these social distancing streets. Yo, listen, it has been, uh, man, it's two months, maybe more than two months. It's wild that we've yeah. gotten to this place. How are you doing first and foremost? Uh, I'm doing all right, man. You know, um, yeah, I'm do- I'm, you know, I mean, I'm doing all right I, uh, under the circumstances, obviously, like, Definitely, you know, a little stir crazy. Definitely a little cabin fever. Even though I do get out, yeah, you know, when I can. Like, you know, I'm not crazy. I'm always, you know, wearing a mask and gloves and everything. But I ride my bike when I can to get some air. Um, but it's that's it's, it's wild because even with that, um, I don't enjoy riding my bike like I used to because yeah. I'm so I'm so anxious when I'm outside. Like, you know, like am I breathing it in? Am I too close to somebody? Yeah, am I, am I you know getting too far away from the crib? I just yeah, the, all of that. Yeah, all of that stuff. Definitely, definitely, the kind of anxiety of of being outside it, it gets to me. You know. Yeah, Jeff. I saw, um, man, maybe like a month ago or so, and people were like, obviously, social distancing, obviously, watching the news, understanding. You think what's going on, and then I saw you would post that people still uptown would be outside, like it was a regular Saturday or Sunday. Yeah, last weekend, um, not this not this Mother's Day weekend that just passed, but last weekend, the weather in New York was really nice. You know, I'm, I'm, you guys remember yeah. that Saturday, Sunday were pretty warm and you know clear skies, and 
um, yeah, man, like I'm riding through Harlem and it's like I'm just seeing a lot of people. It's weird because people have their mask. They'll actually have a mask on, but they'll have it tucked under their chin. Oh, man. Yeah. So, so it's like you got it on, but your face is why it's, it's on your body, but it's not doing not anything. Your, face. <laughs> yeah, your, your chin is good, <laughs> but your face is wide open. So like, what's the, it's almost like a fashion statement to like wear a mask, but not have it on your face. It's weird, man. Huh. Just does not yeah. do anything. Um, yeah. Jeff, yeah, does, yeah, you're scary. obviously, uh, we lost a legend with Andre Harrell. Um, I saw the post that you put up. I want to ask you uh, what your thoughts are on the man and, and the, the body of work and the legend. Yeah, well, I, I respected Andre long before I met him. You know, just being a, you know, obviously a, a kind of a, a kid trying to figure out how to even do music. I had no idea, but, you know, the Uptown Records... Um, you know, Uptown and Def Jam are kind of like the two of the first <clears throat> labels that kind of, you know, captured that that black the, the New York black energy, and just you know, Andre was just you know, this legendary dude to me. So when I, I got into the music biz, um, you know, I met him a few times over the years, and then what happened is O'Neill O'Neill McKnight mm -hmm. was his cousin, and I became really really close. We're still you know really good friends to this day, um, and then that that kind of gave me. Um, you know, a chance to get to know Andre much better via, you know, via O'Neill, because O'Neill lived with him, so I'd, you know, be at the house. And stuff, yeah, yeah. And hanging out and stuff, so then I got to know Andre better, um, and, you know, the dude, you know, what's interesting about Andre is that he was, um, like, and I don't mean, like, I have to kind of preface this by saying this, I don't mean this in any type of negative way, but, like, the, one of his geniuses was, like, everything he did or, like, looked at or thought about was through that lens of you know you know ghetto fabulous mm -hmm. uptown and flying it's like there was every everything everything was that you had like like andre was the dude that would absolutely look you up and down <laughs> you know what i'm saying what are you wearing oh, oh your man your man got on the oh okay okay <laughs> and if you got if you got a compliment from dre for me, it like lifted my whole day because it was like, okay, what I put on, I, I did it right. Yeah, you know everything, even you know from obviously <clears throat> he was super successful in music, and then he went into movies, and he went into you know New York Undercover with television, mm -hmm. then he did Revolt with public, like, but everything was through that lens, and it was it was a, um, a lesson that I learned from him to kind of almost like be myopic in a way, like it's like if this is what you're gonna do, then this is what you're gonna do, and not to you know say that you know he you know obviously he loved his family he loved his son, like all that like it's not not about him being like an asshole to people because he actually was a a beautiful person to people but he was just so like locked into like this kind of thing mm. and making everything around him be whether it, figuring out whether whatever around him fit into that thing or not can you, you know, talk and, about the difference between, uh, you know, style before Andre and style afterwards? Because he did bring in that that champagne rap, that sort of like that difference where it wasn't necessarily like what Russell was bringing into the game. This was something new. Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, the, 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 yeah, you, you kind of nailed it. The big difference was, and I don't want to just kind of attribute to Russell. I just mean in general, like people in that era, it was, you know, hip hop was still pretty new and everything was kind of seen through the lens of hip hop, like, you know, like. You know, wearing Adidas or wearing, you know, you know, like leather leather outfits and you know name belts and name chains and you know Dookie ropes and and all that stuff. Everything was seen through that lens. And Andre, from the beginning, always maybe even from when he was rapping as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, yeah, yeah. he wore he wore a suit. 
<laughs> and the tie, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and those kind of glasses that stockbrokers would wear. Like he, he, you know, he didn't have a, um, a Caesar. He had like a little fro. Like he, he, he looked at, he always had a different thing. Like he was hip hop for sure. Like he was hip hop to his core, but he also had like a aspirational. That's what he was. He was way more aspirational than anybody was in that era in other words he was like i want to go he would rap about it like i'm you know going to paris i'm going to central pay i'm going to you know like that was his thing like kind of like take this hip-hop and this kind of uptown energy but we're going to take this and go to the hamptons and we're going to go to you know turks and caicos and so he he opened up a world um to kids who didn't even know that world existed like sean puffy combs like sean puffy combs he didn't even know these worlds existed like Wow, like people have houses in the Hamptons, and like you go out there in the summer and you lay on the, you know, by your deck by the pool or go on the beach, and you can actually still work, but it's like so fly, and there's models, and there's champagnes flowing, and you know, we kind of kicking it, and there's a whole kind of different, again, lifestyle that just we didn't even know existed back then. The Andre had figured out and made it his life's mission to take us to those places. Yeah, I think did. I think today we can all look back and you sort of take it for granted that it's always been here. You know, people like to dress up like it was 20 years ago, but that 20 years ago didn't exist, you know, before before Andre, before Uptown, before Puff, before, you know, Heavy D and, and everyone who was over there. So what does Uptown Records, when you look back at it, mean from the from the the aspect of this is a black entrepreneur who was like 26 when he founded it to the the you know the credit that MCA and and Polygram and everyone who would like invest in him and Motown give him a chance like what do you think as a music man of Andre Harrell the music man oh uh, he was I mean I I, I, I was like I, I said it on my post like I I genuinely looked up to him and and was in awe of him like at all times even when we would you know kind of be in a casual setting and hanging out in my mind i'm like you know i'm fucking hanging out with <laughs> like, like, like i just i just I, I i really i mean i just admired him so much i mean he was he was a genius like he was like like i i, I you know when i have these conversations i'm like like look at his look at that roster like look at the roster this guy had. this guy had guy mm. he had mary he had heavy he had jodeci mm. like on the same roster at the same time for him to take these these artists who obviously were all amazing artists but he really like developed them like you know heavy d was just like you know heavy sit cat from mount vernon he was just trying to rap a little bit <laughs> mary was you know this hood girl no disrespect from yonkers from the projects and you know sung a little bit and, and messed around like they, and he really cultivated them into like international stars international superstars um he was a genius i mean you know like he could just look at something you know even later on like you know i'm gonna do a i'm gonna do a tv show about some cops it's gonna be a black dude it's gonna be a puerto rican dude but they detectives but they still <laughs> fly like like uh, you are looking at Halle barry and being like i'm gonna put this girl in her first movie strictly business yeah like he just he just had a vision he just had an innate obviously an, an innate you know feeling about things but he had a vision that you know i think a lot of people didn't even really understand at first but he knew he knew what he was doing and to get a blessing from dre um was a was a big thing and and you see like the stars that that he you know pushed out into the world the guy was a genius man straight yeah. up he's a genius well i mean like talk about how um just the absence of like a black owned company like what that's what the, what the game is missing in in 2020 yes 
Well, I got a lot of thoughts about this. I mean, I think that a lot of this stuff, um, the lack of black-owned companies was, uh, you know, I hate to be like conspiracy sledge, but I think a lot of it was by design. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, it happened with Andre. It happened with uh, L.A. Reid. Um, it happened with Russell, where these guys, you know, all three of them, you know, icons, and built uh, these, you know, companies from zero, and you know, mined and found and nurtured black talent on both sides. Now, I don't want to forget that too. Not just the artists on the executive mm-hmm, side too. Mm-hmm. Both, both, all these people nurtured, nurtured executives that have gone on to do things as well. And I feel like once these black companies get to a certain level where they're generating a certain amount of bread, what happens is, you know, you know, the big corporation comes down with a massive check and it's kind of hard for somebody to turn down the type of money that, you know, Andre, you know, uh, LA Reed and Russell got for their companies. Um, and then kind of takes the talent and, you know, kind of absorbs it. And then, you know, things get a little weird. I, I hate that. I hate that. Um, you know, again, Dre got a chance to run Motown Records, which is when he left, you know, Uptown. And Motown, obviously, is a huge legacy company. Mm-hmm. And you know, how do you? And he, they paid him a ton of money and gave him all type of autonomy and allowed him to hire people. So, like, again, I'm not dogging Dre for doing it, but I hate that that that, that constantly happens because, you know, if if he would have kept Motown, like, what would it be today? You know, you know, what yeah. would, you know, if Ellie Reed would have kept LaFace, like all the artists in Atlanta probably would have been assigned to him. Yeah, they all would have been the future. All these guys would have been, they would have been assigned to to LA. So I hate that um, that that happens, and I hate that there's not, you know, a, a, you know, many black companies that are still kind of doing what Andre and Russell and and, and LA and Jermaine, yep. you know, what they what they what they what they did. It, they're so important to the culture. Um, and it's the same kind of play over and over again. I, I, I hate it. Yeah. Um, on one, one black-owned company that I think we all love and respect is Rockefeller Records. But before there was Rockefeller Records, um, another post that you made on Instagram recently was uh, your sort of... Um, you said that it was meant to be that Rockefeller Records would happen, but... Clark did DJ Clark Kent did bring Dame yes. and Jay Z to you, and he did. <laughs> and there was a thought that maybe uh, you guys would would do something with Rockefeller and Jive together uh, that wasn't meant to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, I told the story on Instagram. I've been doing these um A and R stories, which are Instagram. great, by the way. They're so great. Thank you, thank you. And it just kind of just popped in my head to do it. It's not. It was. It's totally organic. It was. It's no kind of people keep asking me, like, "What are you gonna do?" And I'm like, "I don't know, bro." I just, <laughs> I'm just kind of doing it. It's just it's just flowing out of me, and let's see where 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 it goes. Um, but yeah, that particular story was yeah yeah Clark, uh, you know who I've known for, since I started in the music business. You know, um, told me that he had his his boy from Brooklyn, Jay Z, who's the best rapper in the world, and I need to meet him. And we did this meeting, and again, like I said in the story, Jay rhymed differently than but back then. He was still rhyming very quickly, mm-hmm. um, in a kind of quick style. He hadn't you know molded his style into what it obviously become now, and. And, um, you know, I, I told him that he kind of reminded me of Tretch because Tretch <laughs> rap, rap like that. And that definitely was like, a, you know, well, this meeting's about all that. was kind of like this motherfucker. Here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, and I was, you know, shit, I didn't stop their flow. They went on to do great things. And, I, and like I said, in the thing, what I learned from that meeting, and, I, and I've never done that ever since, is like, I didn't really ask them what their plan was, I just listened to the music. Mm-hmm. You know, and I and if I think if I'd have talked to Jay and Dame and 
you know, clock about because Biggs was Biggs wasn't in the meeting. I don't know if they he was involved with them yet. But he wouldn't um, have talked anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Biggs would have just been in the corner anyway. But um, but if I think if I'd have talked to them about what the plan was, like how they were gonna kind of do this street movement and you know make Rockefeller this thing and you know kill the clubs and you know they had a remember they had like a whole Benz and they had wrapped it with Rockefeller logo and mm-hmm. they would park in front of the club and play their Jay's music like if I'd have heard all that stuff I think I would have looked at it differently um and then and like I said in the, in the story you know then over the years I would see you know see them all the time I mean the music business was based in New York so I'd run into them and then you know would always be love like yeah Jay would, Jay, me and Jay would talk on the phone not we're not like friends not like that but like you know for time to time you know we cross paths and then obviously then with when he did Big Pimpin' with UGK like yep. we had a, a lot of interact, interaction there and then he did Best of Both Worlds with R. Kelly and mm-hmm. we had you know a lot of interaction during that period and um I remember like Jay came to the studio to meet R. Kelly for the first time. Rob was recording in New York, and it was and, he, and Rob had had this beat um, that he played Jay that he wanted to rap on, one Jay rap on, and nothing ever came of that. But I remember Dame was trying to buy that beat, and he would call me all the time, like, "Yo, we want to buy the beat. That beat was hard." And, and I was talking to you know R. Kelly's manager. Barry Hankerson, he's like, I don't know nothing about selling beats. I don't know how you sell a beat. I don't know fucking selling no beat. <laughs> you know, but that was, so my point was, it was always like crossing paths with those guys over the years and having conversations, and you know, it's it's, it's all it's all it's all love. But um, but yeah, you know, I guess it just wasn't meant to be. Where were you, know? you when uh when the R. Kelly uh Jay Z tour went up in smoke? I was there. I was at the show. <laughs> I was at the show. Great seats too. Like, oh my! Like, like, girl, <laughs> probably like fifteen or something, like dead center, Mass Square Garden. So I was right there, like when it all happened, and just yeah, I, like you know, the, and it was it was interesting because Jay, you, you know, I think Rob. I don't know if Rob thought it out properly. In other words, Rob is coming out, and you know, and Rob, they're both massive artists at the time. Big but headliners, coming, yeah. You big headliners, massive headliners, and then Rob had come out on um fade the black and all that so like they had you know they had done stuff before but um rob is coming on and he's doing like his records which are you tend to be kind of slow mm-hmm. you know bodies calling you know bump and grind and yeah stuff like that and and you know the crowd is into it but but then when jay comes out and he's doing like you know i don't psa wasn't at that time but whatever the big kind of records were at that time you know give it to me and all that stuff yeah like the crowd is obviously going crazy and then rob comes out and then the crowd sits down and then jay <laughs> comes out and the crowd goes up and then rob comes out and the crowd sits down. So, so rob I, I believe also also felt like rob especially it, it being in new york in jay's hometown rob was very frustrated because he couldn't get the crowd going the way he wanted meanwhile like when hope comes out it's like you know nuclear explosion <laughs> stage um yeah and then rob comes out and just you know this the stage lights are still dark and he's like i ain't doing this no more somebody's out here flashing the gun at me and ain't like that <laughs> and it just turns into that and everybody's everybody's li- literally like is this part of the show <laughs> like, nobody could believe it they're like wait well, this must be part of the show this is gonna be crazy and then, you know, like 10 15 minutes it's like 10 minutes or so like there's nobody on stage Man. And then all of a sudden, I remember then the crowd starts going, Hova, Hova, Hova. And that gets louder and louder, and they're yelling for Jay to come out. Man. And Jay comes out, and he's, he says some slick shit, as he always does, <laughs> about Rob not wanting to do the show. And then he literally starts pulling people out the crowd and out of, out of backstage. To, and then he's like, yo, if you, if you got to see it, it's actually... um." Next time you guys talk to Lenny S, you should yeah. ask because Lenny S was actually like taking people's CDs and putting them in to play on the Mass Square Garden stage so they could perform. 
What? Jesus. Yeah, yeah. People like, yo, give me your state or your dat tape or your show tape <laughs> or whatever. And Lenny would like load it up and then they would come out and they would do two or three songs. T.I. came out. Yep. Usher came out. Yeah, yeah. Lenny was the guy like doing it. That's so good. It's insane. It was an insane <laughs> night, bro. Um, it was an insane night. Jeff, it's it's sort of impossible to predict, you know, all the trends moving forward. But hey, that's the business that you're in, right? So I figured yes. that we would ask you this. Um, we talked to a friend recently. Uh, she's a fashion editor. And she was telling us that when this is all said and done, maybe it's six months from now, maybe it's a year from now, maybe it's two years from now. People who have been dressing up uh, in basically sweatsuits or, uh, you know, just very relaxed. Yeah, real cozy wear. Clothing, yeah. yeah. Uh, they're going to come out of here. They're going to be like dressed up in suits. It's going to be more flashy, more back to that early 90s thing. So is there any possibility that we're going to get four on the floor, more up-tempo dance music at the end of all this? Yes. I think that that happens in uh throughout history that has happened after you know way back after like we're in world war ii like rock and roll was invented you know what i'm saying and it was obviously that was a very like energetic music um rest in peace little richard by the way yeah totally rest in peace to the the architect little richard um and then in the 70s when um you know it was like the gas prices were through the roof and you know this uh i don't know it was i guess it was a recession at that point Mm -hmm. and you know it, it was just dark and, and people were coming home from um vietnam and you know drug issues and all that shit we got disco mm-hmm. and like a lot of funk music so the music does tend to the pendulum does tend to swing up when pe- the country comes out of a dark period so i do think we're going to get more up-tempo dancey um you know fun music and you're seeing it now even like with the tiktoks that are happening you know, God which are all fun. Every single one. <laughs> that, that's my I, point. Which are, yeah. which are all fun. You know, you had the um, you know, the, the Ty Dolla Sign Wiz record. Yep. Um, I have you know, we, me and Missy have the, the we did the, the cool off challenge. Challenge. Yep. yep. You know, everything is up tempo and fun, and it's people participating in it together, like with families and stuff. You know, people are their friends, and and people are kind of communing over this dance fun of tempo music, and I do think that um, we're gonna that that feeling and that energy is going to keep going once the um you know whatever the other side of this looks like i you know i don't know what it's going to look like but yeah i do think dark dark music is going to kind of take a back seat well i mean like how does that inform what you're what acts you're looking at moving forward um or does it i mean like is that is that just sort of like a mood that will come and go and the the acts can do what what fits the mood but like are you when you search for music right now like what are you looking for um I, I haven't really changed what I'm looking for because I've always kind of looked for things that are, you know, unique and different and, and, and have an element of, of fun or, or I don't know if humor is the right term, but um, I guess a little lightness underneath to them, you know, even if they're, you know, hot styles, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> hot styles. Stanky leg. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, but so that, I have, that hasn't really changed. I think what's 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 gonna what's gonna happen, which is a good thing, is again because of all the TikTok stuff and everybody being in the kids on TikTok are just the creativity is stunning. Actually, it's literally stunning to me sometimes when I see some of the things that they do. Um, I think that this is allowing them obviously a, a bigger platform because people are paying more attention to that, and that bigger platform is going to give them more confidence to not be to feel like they have to fit in. 
Yeah, Jeff. One last what, thing before what, we. What's out, yeah, yeah, one last thing before we let you go, which is, yep. uh, man, could you imagine if we were all outside right now celebrating Andre and that whole catalog? My God, that I, I just talked to a buddy about a, a mine about that recently because it's sad, obviously, that he can't get a proper homecoming, mm-hmm. homegoing rather, because of you know rules and stuff. And it's to me sad that we can't go to, you know, a party or a brunch or. a cookout or whatever and play like you know the uptown catalog and be amongst you know each other and dancing and having a good time to you know guy or heavy d or mary or whoever yeah it, it is i mean i think we'll still get to do it but yeah i mean and that's something i and, and dre would have just loved that yeah <laughs> well everybody partying to his music would have been like the the best shit ever for him Absolutely. Well, Jeff, while we're here, we'd like to celebrate everyone. We salute you. We thank you. Uh, we love you, Jeff. Take care of yourself up there, and we'll be talking soon, all right? Love you guys, too. 914. There we yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Jeff Sledge. Shout out to Naima Cochran. And shout out to the one and only DJ Clark Kent. Jeff, are we back tomorrow? We are back every day forever. As always, guys. Not for real, for real. Sure, sure. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Brrrat.